Good morning. Thank you, Jim. Um, well, I'm just going to continue us in our series. Um, today we're going to be reading or listening, however you choose, uh, to James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. James's letter was written by a man who took Jesus at his word. And he was entrusting that word to other scattered persecuted followers of Jesus. His letter flowed from his faith in that word, in the word, Jesus, the embodiment of the scriptures that James would have been steeped in from birth. The sermon today um, is going to revolve just around a small portion of that letter, but the message on my heart requires a little bit of context. In the beginning, was the word. I'm starting by going right back to Genesis, the first book of our Bible. Genesis 1 verse 27 says, after God created everything and he created people, says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. James wrote his letter to remind people who they were, who God is, and who their neighbors are, and to live in a way that reflects that truth. That truth was woven through the Bible right from the beginning, all the way through. In fact, when I was putting together this message, I was like, wow, I have to use, I have to include the whole Bible, but that's not possible. I have a short amount of time, so do my best. In James's mind and memory would have been the time when, um, from the Gospel of Mark, it said some of the Pharisees and Herodians were sent to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance to the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription Caesar's, they replied. And Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. As we've been immersing ourselves in the letter of James, we've been learning about how James was reminding the scattered Christians to put their faith into action, to be true in word and deed. This was how they and we would image God back into the community of believers and into the lives of our neighbors. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Image. Let me read you the portion of the letter from James that we're going to focus on today. You can just settle and... Be still and receive God's word. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, 
must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Lord God, this is your word. Please have your way with us today. We love you and thank you. Amen. James uses strong language against showing favoritism. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Against what law? The royal law found in scripture. Love your neighbor as yourself. Showing favoritism is both an offense against your neighbor and against God who created us all in his image. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Can you imagine a mother of two being okay with it if one of her children is treated like royalty, but the other is mocked, denigrated, or denied justice? I can't. <laughs> Jesus described how God feels about his children this way. Suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I've found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Whose image is on this coin? We are treasured, valued. We are God's treasure. James was just reminding us of that. 
When we sum people up based on their value to us, we devalue them. We dismiss God's wealth. We pass it by as we might pass by a penny on the road, not giving it a second thought. So I have a story about a penny on the road. Several years ago, Glenn transitioned in his role with InterVarsity. Sensing God's call to do so, he went from a regional leadership position with InterVarsity back to full-time campus staff on campuses in northern New York. But this involved relinquishing access to significant regional and area funding. And we had a mounting deficit. On a walk one morning during this time, I was feeling stressed, anxious, and depressed. My brain was distracted as I struggled to keep my focus on God's goodness rather than our need. The deficit wasn't a personal one. It was funding for our work with InterVarsity. Glenn had already taken a significant cut in pay and was considering taking on another job to support the work on campus. He was also wondering if we were going to need to sell our house. I noticed a penny lying on the, in the snow, in the dirt on the side of the road, but I kept walking. A few yards beyond that penny, I felt a nudge in my spirit to go back and pick it up, but I kept walking. I didn't want to retrace my steps for a penny, and I certainly didn't want to get my hands wet and dirty. But the nudge became so strong that I felt that ignoring it might be a mistake. So I retraced my steps. I took off my glove, bent down, and retrieved the dirty penny from the street. Once I picked it up, I could see that a cross shape had been cut right out of the center of that penny. The penny was a timely reminder of all the ways that God had provided for us in the past. And tears came as I realized it was a reminder that he was with us in the present. Once I got home and settled, the phone rang. It was a friend from college, my former prayer partner. We don't just call each other, and it's been decades she called and she told me that she had strongly felt God directing her to send a check to InterVarsity for our account. The check covered our deficit and it gave us the margin Glenn needed to raise the funding necessary to keep him on campus. My friend had no clue about our need and she refused to let me be too effusive in my thanks. It's God's money, she said. I still have that penny. I actually have it today somewhere. Yes, here it is. I have it in case anyone wants to see it later. It, this is God's money, but it's more than a penny to me. The cross-shaped space at its center created an icon that to this day reminds me of God's specific and particular care and provision. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory disp displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. 
That's from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We are God's treasure. Each of us is worth far more than we can imagine. Each Christian, as James helps me understand it, is an icon of God's grace when the world can see God through our cross-shaped spaces. It isn't the element that we're made of, copper or silver or gold, that speaks to the world. It's the cross in each of us. And each person, Christian or not a Christian, is stamped with God's image. Which is why James reminded us of the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. My brothers and sisters, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. An alumni from InterVarsity at Potsdam and Clarkson came to visit several years ago. We invited another friend to join us for dinner, thinking that they would enjoy meeting our out-of-town guest, as they had some common academic interests. However, this person declined our invitation, stating that they had too much to do. We ran into them later and asked if they had happened to attend one of the lectures that our friend, the alumni, had given at one of the universities. Our friend, who was a professor, had been invited to lecture at both universities because of his expertise in his field. But the friend that we invited to the dinner uh, replied, what? Why didn't you tell me who your friend was? I would have joined you for dinner if I had known who he was. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. God often doesn't show up in the places we'd expect. I found his love and grace in a penny in the slush. Moses found it in a burning bush in the desert. Joseph in a dream and Elijah in a whisper. God shows up lots of times outside. Outside God's official residence, outside the limits of respectability, outside our understanding of who God is. Looking to the wealthy, that is anyone we consider to have the means or ability to bail us out, raise our status, or keep us safe, is all normal. It's basically looking for someone with the power to aid you, as our friend aided us when we were in crisis. People network in all areas of life, but it can become a trap if you begin to trust in a power that is not God and disqualify those who don't have the means to help you from receiving what you need. That's why it's a trap. Not only does it trap you, it can trap the ones with wealth into thinking they are more than they are. It can trap the one you've dismissed in an outsider status, not included, because you and they think they don't have the means to get you what you want or need. Perhaps you devalue yourself. Perhaps you think you don't deserve to get what you want or need. My brothers and sisters, Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. We are treasures. We are God's treasure. 
Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? As I mentioned, this theme of not showing favoritism, because God doesn't, shows up all through scripture. Consider how God treats the rejected one in the story of the sisters Rachel and Leah, both wives of the patriarch Jacob. This story is, again, from the first pages of the Bible. Jacob was in love with Rachel, who was beautiful. But he was tricked into marrying Leah, poor in the eyes of the world, Rachel's older, less physically appealing sister. Genesis 29, 31 through 35 puts it this way. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. But Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So she named him Levi. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. And she stopped having children. Leah was not the favored one. To Jacob's eyes, she was ill-favored. Yet, God chose to make her the mother of Levi, the patriarch of a family of priests that included Moses, to whom was given the law. And she was the mother of Judah, the patriarch of the line of King David, of the line of King Jesus, in whom the law was fulfilled. My brothers and sisters, Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Much later in the Old Testament, again, <laughs> comes the account of Jonah, who was a prophet of God and an Israelite who, with good cause, despised a whole tribe of people, a nation called the Ninevites. God tapped Jonah to bring a message of salvation to the Ninevites. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall when I fleed to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, you might as well kill me. It's better for me to die than live. Jonah wasn't very happy about God's grace and compassion for the Ninevites. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. The Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give him shade. Jonah was happy about the plant, but at dawn the next day, God 
sent a worm who chewed up the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die. It said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yep, said Jonah. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Showing favoritism is both an offense against those not being equally favored and against God himself, who has created us all in his image. My brothers and sisters in Christ, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. I like to think that Dr. Seuss might put it this way. Not for a tribe, not for a vibe, not for money nor success, not for the way they look or dress. Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Consider Jesus' parable from the Gospel of Matthew. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put his, the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick. And you looked after me. I was in prison. And you came to visit me. When we show favoritism by excluding, rejecting, judging, pandering, or promoting, we are, in effect, blind to, or at least ignoring, the image of God stamped on each person. At first, when I felt that urge to pick up the penny from the slushy road, I ignored it. But later, I decided I should turn around. That's the way we can apply this text. Maybe we have dismissed or diminished someone. Perhaps we don't esteem them. Perhaps they have no discernible value to us. God doesn't always show up in the places where we'd expect or in whom we'd expect. Jesus frequently condemned the religious leaders of his day as being godless and embraced the very ones they were rejecting. Who are you rejecting? Who are you ignoring? Invite God to reveal to you his image in them, their worth in his eyes, and his love for them. To repent is to turn around. To recognize that we've been heading in the wrong direction 
choosing the wrong path, missing our exit. Let's turn around and pick up the pennies. As we lift people up, we will recognize the image of God stamped on each one. And we will be rich in love, wealthy, beyond imagining. It's very rare that God comes to us with a lot of noise. God comes unannounced and unadorned. God is quiet. We can disregard God if we so choose. But those who are paying attention will backtrack for the penny and find grace on the road. So I want to invite you right now to close your eyes. Just rest before God with what you've heard. Let's spend a few moments in silent reflection.